Welcome to Let's Talk About Brain Tumours, the podcast where we'll be talking to people who've been affected by a brain tumour diagnosis, either their own diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one. We'll also be sharing news and updates from the Brain Tumour Charity about what we're doing to halve the harm and double survival. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. With me today I've got my co-host Sarah Chalice and I've also joined by Kaj Mystery who's going to be talking to us today about her experiences of being a carer for her dad. Welcome to the podcast guys. Hello. Thank you so much. Hello. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming Kaj and thanks for sharing your story. You are the first young person we've had coming in talking about your experiences of what it's like to be a carer from a young person's perspective. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your story, how you became a carer? Yeah, sure. So last July, my dad unfortunately passed away from a grade four glioblastoma. It was very, very aggressive and the doctors were just so negative about his prognosis from the off. And from his diagnosis to his eventual death, it was 18 months and it just feels so rapid, but also the longest painstaking sort of time in our lives as well. I think the thing is with this sort of diagnosis is that you have to watch that person's decline mentally, physically. We lost him in every aspect of his being. And I think a lot of it is sort of like, I can't can't find the word. This is the thing, isn't it? There are no words when you experience something like this that can fully ever really describe what it's like. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's really strange, like being my age and having those roles reversed because I always look to my dad to sort of be the one to, to show me the way and show me the path. How old are you? Just to let everybody know how you know how young you are, basically. Yeah, so I'm currently 24, and um, when my dad got diagnosed with the cancer, he I was 22, and yeah, very very young. I was living in Manchester at the time, um, my full time job. It's so crazy the way it started and the way we all found out. I remember being at work one day, and my sister called me. And she was like, dad's dad's had a seizure or something in the middle of the night. Um, And it was like half two in the morning. And, you know, mum was next to him in the bed. And I can't imagine how frightening it must have been for her. And I think the process of finding sort of like what he had was just so long because it started with a sort of like there's something in his head, there's something in his brain. We don't know what it is. We need to do the surgery and find out and That process was just so difficult because we're just waiting for the unexpected. And then, yeah, we found out it was it was quite an aggressive form of cancer. We were all just so baffled, like surely not dad's like the most active member of our household. Like it felt really, really hard to accept. And I think we all went into this sort of phase of being in denial and we were just trying to be so positive for him and, and uplift him and just be like, it's fine, dad. But it was the first time I'd seen my dad actually look quite vulnerable in that sense as well. I think it was the fear of the unknown and, and where that journey would take us as a family. Never in a million years would I think that I would have become a carer for my dad. And I think there were certain things at my young age that I feel like, obviously not in a selfish way, But it was really strange having to leave the city I worked in, my friends, my social life, because my world became dad. And it's the same with me and my sisters. There's actually a 10 year age gap between me and the eldest. And she had um, a little boy at the time as well. 
and he was really really close to my dad and I think he was getting really confused like why why was grandpa looking so different why wasn't he playing with me anymore and it was really really difficult having to sort of field those questions because we didn't really know ourselves dad dad's decline was very very fast it was absolutely shocking how fast it was I remember he got diagnosed in February and then in October this was a week before my 23rd birthday he just had the biggest seizure and it was so frightening to watch I just remember thinking like this isn't right like I I genuinely thought it was the end like I'd I'd never seen anything like it. And then we decided to take dad to the Mary Curie Hospice in Bradford. I think for all of us, it was so new and none of us really knew what we were doing. And we genuinely thought that he would be so much better off in the hands of professionals where he had eyes on him all the time. They knew how to use the equipment because dad had a hoist at the time. Um, so like just for context he couldn't move sort of like the left hand side of his body he was leaning a lot and then slowly but surely he just lost complete control so even when he smiled it was like lopsided it just it was so it just didn't look like dad he was on a ridiculous amount of medication as well which made him really hungry and that that made him gain a lot of weight too you know it was like me my mum my two sisters so I remember he'd have his sort of bed in the hospice or at home and there'd be two of us on either side and it'd actually take two people to sort of turn him on his side we'd give him like bed baths we'd change his nappy we'd feed him we'd do everything that we could for him and yeah dad dad was bedridden from November till July the following year so he he hadn't seen even the light of day because he just couldn't get out of bed and it was really really difficult to get him outside and yeah like I think it it just sort of escalated so fast from the second he got diagnosed to to his eventual death and and I think there's a lot of like there was a lot of dignity lost on his end which was a really hard thing for us not only him but us as well to see I think having his three girls do everything for him was really difficult and I could see it in his eyes even though he wouldn't actually express it and I I know that you know mum really like tried her best to like make sure he was as comfortable as could be it was dad's wish to die at home so we didn't keep him in the hospice in the end we'd brought him home and he actually outlived his prognosis by about six months too and I do think him being at home was was such a, a positive played such a positive role in that sort of short extension of his life. I think that's um, and just sort of, Kurt, yeah. Because I, you know, I think about my husband and I found he'd go downhill quite rapidly <laughs> in the hospice to give me a to give me a break. But when I got him home, he actually improved through through having love and you know the home com- comforts. You you have an advanced level of caring. You know your dad, don't you? You know, even if he can't speak and he, he can't express himself, you know what he wants and needs and what he likes. To keep him, you know, up, keep him buoyed up and keeping him at home, if you can do, is beneficial in a number of ways, I think. You have a bit more control at times as well, don't you? Definitely. And he was such a private person before he got sick. So 
I can't even imagine, you know, someone random coming to sort of touch me in that sense because I can't do it myself. You'd rather have someone, you know, and love do it for you. You know, dad has done everything for us growing up. So this was like the least that we could do for him. But it was just so heartbreaking to have to do it for him, if you know what I mean. It's just something that we all collectively feel never should have happened. He should still be here living quite a full life. And it it just feels totally unfair. The thing is, like, I really, really, like, missed my dad before he passed away. And I think that's something that not a lot of people kind of understood. So, yeah, I I think it's just sort of one of those things that, that people don't really have much awareness about as well. And did anyone talk to you about that when when your dad got diagnosed because it's like you said although it was very quick that 18 months you were slowly losing your dad bit by bit by bit by bit you had your dad disappearing in front of you effectively parts you know his personality everything did anyone ever talk to you at the time about because you're grieving you know all of the each part of those things that 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 the brain tumor takes away from him you're grieving even though he's still you know he's still there you're missing who your dad was yeah 100 percent. and until you'd actually said that phrase I actually felt validated in what I was feeling I feel like it's really easy for others to sort of minimize my loss solely down to the fact that dad was still alive but it was really painful mourning someone that's still alive I think there's no shadow of a doubt that I had lost dad way before he died. And I wasn't looking at bubbly, loving dad that cared about every aspect of my life anymore. I was just staring at the shell of dad, physically, mentally, everything about him had changed. It it is really, really painful. And, you know, towards the end of his life, we even had to pretend to be like nurses because he didn't recognise us. And there's this whole thing of like, okay, but your dad is still here, like, it's fine. But it's like, it's 100% not because it's like more, it's kind of like rubbing salt into the wound that it's like someone's almost given my dad a personality transplant and we're having to do everything for him. There was just no quality of life for him. And I just do feel that he didn't really stand much of a chance from the off. I could just see from the minute he got diagnosed that his symptoms just worsened like and there was nothing that was really helping him and they just put him on so many drugs so much morphine so much chemo and I do look back on it now and I think for what though because I just I don't know like I know it was meant to help him in the end but it didn't and it didn't and it it extended his life I'm sure maybe for a short amount of time but I do feel like the love that we had was probably stronger than any of that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think, really, love, I think love is the key, isn't it? And I'm yeah. sure people listening to this, you know, it, it is about love. You're if you've got people, if you've got a family there, family unit. I mean, you've got all your girls wanting you there. You know, giving you love every day. That is a huge boost. Keep yeah. them going more than any drug, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And now he's gone. And it just doesn't feel right. But if I'm being honest, it didn't feel right when he was still here and really sick. 
you know, there's there's a lot of things in life that I feel like I've still got to look forward to. Like I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm only 24 years old and I have this like whole future ahead of me. But the fact of the matter is, is that my dad is never going to get to walk me and my sisters down the aisle. He's never going to watch me have any children. And he's just a memory for future generations to come, which is why I always try to do him justice when I describe him to like people that have never met him. And, you know, people always say, well, like he's still there. And I'm like, well, he 100% isn't. <laughs> Not in the sense that I don't want him in <laughs> anyway. I do think people kind of tiptoe around the subject of death and grief. I do find that it's the fear of saying like the wrong thing or trying not to like upset the person that's grieving. For me, I found that the simplest words actually comforted me a lot. And I would much prefer someone saying, do you know what? What's happening is really rubbish, but I'm here for you. And I'm really, really sorry. Mm. Because that means that the person has sort of truly acknowledged how dire the situation is. Instead of the whole everything happens for a reason malarkey, which I've heard just quite enough of. (laughs) (laughs) You talked briefly about the fact that you ended up having to do personal care for your dad. Yeah. I can't imagine what that must be like for that role to be reversed and for you to have to do things that you probably never, ever imagined. You're having to do things for your dad that, that no child ever thinks they're going to be doing for their for their parent. Yeah, 100%. You know, even describing what the weather was like outside for him, it was just heartbreaking, you know, that that sort of life that he had, you know, going from someone that loved the outdoors, loved being active. You couldn't get dad to sit down for like a second. He was just always about, it's insane, to just having him bed bound and... He wasn't ever particularly looking at anything. His eyes just kind of like flit about. There was no like light in his eyes. You know, we'd sit down, we'd explain what was going on in the news because he loved keeping up with the news. We'd explain what the weather was like, how the sun felt on our skin. And yeah, I think on on an emotional level as well, just trying to sort of explain what he's missing out of life. But it's hard because it was just so much. It's like every, he was just missing so much. And he just slept a lot too. It, it was it was really difficult as well for all of us. I know that I had a period of kind of because of coronavirus working from home and being able to care for my dad at the same time. And I remember doing sort of like, say, a meeting or a team catch up in the morning. And then at 11 o'clock, I'd come down and bathe my dad. And then I'd go back upstairs and work. And that was my norm, you know, it was like, oh, dad, shower time. And did people at work know you were doing that? Did, did they know that that was what your life looked like at that point? It's really hard to explain the gravity of a situation to people that haven't been through it. Mm. Because when I say to somebody that I'm working with that, oh, I'm, I'm just caring for my dad, they think, that it's kind of easy because oh like just gonna get him a cup of tea yeah yeah like yeah literally like that or but it was literally so hands-on having to get sort of apron on gloves scrubbing run back upstairs and try and get on with my day in some form it's really hard and I feel like there's not much awareness around people being young carers 
I, because I do feel like you have to juggle more aspects of your life. For me, you know, I was only just sort of like getting into the stride of my career. And, you know, dad was really, really sick at the time. And there's obviously no comparison whatsoever because dad would always come first. But it, I found it really, really hard to juggle that. And Do you think then, that people minimised it because your mum was there and they assumed your mum was his primary carer and they perhaps didn't think that you were doing as much as you were? Yeah, I, I do think that. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, it wasn't just me and dad in the house. It was like, oh, but you have your mum to do everything too. But I think they forgot that dad was bed bound and my mum is tiny and she couldn't move in on her own. And, you know, it's about vocalising, isn't it? I think, you know, when, when I'm hearing your story, Kaj, it's letting people know what you actually do. And anybody listening to this who's caring for their loved one, you go, oh, I'm, I'm just caring for them. That sounds really broad. And it could be a, just a cup of tea. But actually, no, it could be like you have, like I have, that hoisting your yeah. loved one. You know, you're getting gloves on. You're cleaning them. You're changing their nappy. You're wiping the drawer. You'll get something yeah. stuck out of their throat. It, you know, you're having to do... You're, you're mixing the medicines it's very hands-on and you're basically a nurse in essence 100%, and yeah. if you don't tell people that if we don't vocalize people and that's like even your closest of friends or you know colleagues at work they just don't know do you think there's a little part that doesn't want to tell people because you're almost trying to preserve the dignity of the person you're caring for like you don't want to tell somebody my dad's in you know, adult diapers and I've got to go and change I'm just late for the meeting because I was changing my dad's nappy. <laughs> You know, and, and there's a part of you that doesn't want to say that because you know your dad would have hated that. People knowing that, so it makes you minimise what you're doing. Yeah, and also in the moment, I just had this whole, let me just crack on with it. And, you know, once I'd showered him, I always had the urge to kind of like sit with him for a little while, like hold his hand and and just chat to him. But it's just time wouldn't allow me to do so. I think that stage of my life was probably the hardest obviously it was a blessing in the sense that the pandemic made us have to stay under the same roof and and you know I, I had the chance to spend the best quality time with, with dad before he did pass away but in the same vein I was juggling so many different aspects of my life under one roof not really seeing my mates at all and not really having any kind of like social interaction other than sort of like caring with dad and then working and yeah it it does really sort of like build up in that sense as well things just got really bad fast what did did you do at at that time did you manage to get snippets of time to look after yourself cash what were you doing to relieve the stress for you did you notice at times how you felt and thought okay I need to go and have a walk or do something to get out of here to just have some break definitely and think a really important point with that is you know when when all your family are under that same roof caring for a particular person it's really easy to get on top of each other and to sort of scrap and and pick arguments because the thing is with the situation was that it was so unfortunate but the bottom line is there was no one to blame and and that is so difficult because there's nothing there's nothing you can really direct your anger towards so I think doing sort of cathartic activities like I took up painting at the time and I made sure I got out at least once a day just to walk the 
the fresh air did me so much good. It meant that I was able to let off steam that I'd otherwise let, let out on my sisters or my mum. And yeah, I think we all try to take a leaf out of that book and, and make sure that we're all trying to get out as much as possible too. But with that comes the a guilt of leaving dad in the house. I, I remember I'd only go for a walk around the block and I'd feel so bad about leaving him in bed. And all I wanted to do was just sort of show him where I was going and, and take him with me. So I'd rush back home as well. So it's not even like I could enjoy the time that I had outside the house too. So yeah, it's, it's, just, it's difficult in that situation, but you've got to find those little moments of peace for your own sanity because yeah just being under that same roof for a really long time can't do anyone any good you talked about how it affected your life at the time being a carer and you're moving back home how's it been since since your dad your dad has sadly died how how has life changed how are you finding picking up the pieces of your life now yeah it's kind of like if I had to put it into like an analogy like a massive tornado has just torn through our house but it's taken my dad and we're just left to sort of pick up the pieces and we're trying to sort of rebuild our lives and it's just not the same and you know it's been over a year now but in the in the great aspect of time it's absolutely nothing at all and it you know dad dying was the end of probably the most active relationship I've had you know in my life he was like my absolute world I didn't go a day without speaking to him so I think we're all just trying to kind of grow from what happened I know that I've kind of turned to the brain tumor charity to kind of release a lot of emotion and and trying to help others and and trying to kind of live like have dad live through me if that makes sense like I know that he's not here but he's still half of me and I know that he'd love the fact that I'm doing something lovely for charity in his memory mm-hmm. um but yeah like life has changed um and it's crazy because it's permanently altered and every time I go home I'm I'm very reminded of that fact when I see where his bed used to be and I see, you know, little scratches and marks on the walls from where we banged his bed. <laughs> um, and yeah, just just walking into the living room and seeing the sofa we'd be sat at. And every Friday night, I know he'd, he'd get out a little bit of brandy. And yeah, just, <laughs> just, just constant, constant reminders. But I'm lucky enough to be able to have Manchester as, as my place to kind of, take away from from all the negative feelings that are within the house but I know it must be like more difficult for my mum who is still living in the house and and you know she's reminded of that every day sleeping in the same bed that they shared and and having to walk um through what was essentially a home hospice it's it's just really sad but I think as time goes on I do believe that you know the grief doesn't get smaller but you grow around the grief um Absolutely. so yeah do you think you're still in a caring role though do you think that it's just changed that you've now got to care for your sister and your mum in you know in a sense because you're all grieving you're all at different stages of that and that you've all got to look out for each other because you've all been through a real trauma 
Absolutely. What, what you've gone through during that 18 months of your dad from when he got his diagnosis, that's a trauma that you've all got to somehow navigate and come through in your own different ways do you find that now you've moved away back to Manchester but there's still a part of you that is really worried about how the rest of your family are doing oh absolutely and you know I know when before dad passed away he's just said look after each other don't fight you know just be there and we all have a shared responsibility to be there for each other now because, you know, we, we were a family of five, now we're four, and it's made us sort of a tighter unit um, than, than ever before. Not just because of dad's wishes, but we're all we have now. So definitely, even though we're all leading different paths in life, it, it makes me want to kind of like be there a little bit more and like look out for my family too. And, you know, it, it, I'm very conscious of the fact that as my dad is a prime example of this, that tomorrow just really isn't promised. Mm. You know, he was living such a seemingly fine and healthy life only to be diagnosed with a a malignant brain tumour the next day. And it's it's just insane. So yeah, absolutely. But with that, I think our grief is so, it's so individual too, but in the same vein, like we've all lost dad in different ways. So I know my sister's kind of turned to dad for different things. My mum lost her life partner, you know, 36 years. But not only that, you know, my my four-year-old nephew lost his only living granddad, who he was so close to, and he doesn't fully grasp the concept of death too. So we've all just got to, to kind of bound together and just be there for each other more than ever. And is it difficult when you go home because... I know when we talked previously, you said about, you know, your dad's notebooks are all there and that Mm. his clothes, he's got a wardrobe of clothes that one half is your dad pre-diagnosis. And then there's like these extra, extra, extra large clothes. Like it's like the two, two different worlds. Is that difficult? So difficult. Yeah. I just, the thing is with dad was that basically when he left the house to sort of like get checked out, at the hospital he never sort of came back in the same way as he left so his leaning got a lot worse and then he eventually got bed bound so the hospital didn't sort of let him come home straight away and then when he did come home he was just confined to the bottom floor of the house so he never got to visit his bedroom or touch his belongings again never got to sort of like wear his clothes and yeah, it's honestly like having like two halves of a person in, in that sort of same room when I see his extra extra large clothes. But then I see his sort of petite <laughs> shirts as well. He always used to wear like trousers and tuck his shirt in, but his trousers were quite high. The real <laughs> dad outfit. Um, but yeah, but... In the same vein, it's like someone's just sort of like left their life on on just sort of pause for a second. Nothing was sort of packed away. I think, yeah, it is really, really difficult because you see all the hopes and, and aspirations that he was wanting to sort of come back to. Um, and he had a lot of desire and a lot of wishes out of life. He wasn't done travelling. He was only a year into retirement. Um, he didn't get to enjoy his hard-earned money. It is really, really difficult having to revisit 
that same environment. And it just shows the speed, doesn't it? Like you said, you know, he left the house one day as if he was just going to carry on his life. Like he was just going to hospital to get checked out. By the time he returned home, he was bedbound and living downstairs. He wasn't able to even go upstairs to resume any part of the life that he'd walked out of the house that day. No, and yeah. I could say that as well with, with Neil. You know, I always found that kind of weird that he'd never be up the stairs again. You know, I'm, I'm in a little 1870s cottage and the, the stairs are pretty steep anyway. And it was it was always a bit near the, the, you know, knuckle of me trying to get him up there anyway as he started to lose his balance from where one of the tumours was. Yeah. And that whole point of him not not being able to, he'll never be up those stairs again to, just to go into the main bedroom and stuff. Just things that we take for granted and they're, you know, down in the living room. And it is it is strange. And, and it is like those two lives. You're, you're absolutely right. It's yeah. And the bigger clothes, because Neil was on steroids as well. And um, and just naturally, you, you do just put on weight and they're, they're hungry. So, that you know, Neil was in these triple XL and he's kind of like, I can call them his eating trousers, but, you know, <laughs> the jogging bottoms. But they're just comfortable, you know, just mm. nice, comfortable things that are easy to get on them and off them again. You know, it's rarity that I put in a, in a shirt or in trousers it's hard work actually to try and do that when you're rolling somebody from side to side and then having to hoist them oh absolutely yeah 100 we um it was actually one of dad's final wishes as well just to go upstairs for the last time so we had him hoisted taken upstairs in a wheelchair and I'm not completely sure if he registered every single thing that was happening but he had a smile on his face and we took him from room to room and there was just that little spark that was there. I could see it. And yeah, he, he visited his bedroom. He looked out of the window, just small things that people really do take for granted meant so much to him in that moment. Wonderful, Kaj. I really absolutely love that because I had a loft conversion done in the kind of last year of Neil's life and I really wanted to get Neil up those stairs and see what had happened up in, you know, in the house and how, how amazing it looked in comparison. Um, but Neil was, he was like, I don't know, he's like 18 stone. I think yeah, he's flooded down the walls by the time we tried to get him up there. <laughs> We've got a couple of the rugby boys around, you know. So I think that's really special yeah. that you did that. Yeah, massively. I yeah. think it's just so like anytime he asked for anything, food, drink or any wishes, we just wanted to do our best to just fulfill it for him because it was just the least we could do in that moment. My role for dad was I was his ice cream feeder. So <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> Great job. Great job. So because he really struggled swallowing towards the end of his life, ice cream was like his best friend. It was the only thing he could enjoy. And I can imagine it felt quite nice trickling down his throat. I remember because he, he had difficulty swallowing he'd leave for dinner but he'd still manage to muster the words ice cream <laughs> and look at me <laughs> can you eat ice cream now without thinking of your dad I love that so, okay. really strange with that we don't so he used to have ice cream with a little bit of muffin and um <laughs> we don't buy those particular muffins anymore oh. we don't eat ginger cake and custard because it reminds us of dad it's it's small things like that which we bought religiously for those last few months of his life and we had so much of it in the home when he died that 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 felt like his pudding like us eating it 
like we so you describe it you're describing Neil because mm. he was my biscuit munching machine and he loved his cake and ice cream and even a, a message from Facebook came into my onto my phone today in Gran Canaria and my dad called him the cake crusader because <laughs> he just it was a plate of cakes and it was mm. chocolate ice cream and it was custard as well it was like a full-on medley <laughs> honestly so it, it's that you know it's kind of that really comfort eating really mm something that they enjoy it's, it's one of the last pleasures let's be honest oh, it's, it's food absolutely. absolutely I think you know food is something that couldn't have been taken away it was one of the last pleasures of his life and so we gave it to him it's not like he could have gone out and you know seen somewhere interesting or had a had a meaningful conversation the food aspect was purely just for him and his enjoyment and that's what made us want to kind of feed him more and that's it's like oh he's, he's happy yeah. the only thing you hear yeah, when you're when you're in that situation it's you just think it's it's the only thing I've got left the only thing in my arsenal now to 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 ease their suffering in any way because that's the one thing that gives them pleasure yeah 100% and even though dad also he was bed bound for like a good six seven months the nurses were so shocked that he had no bed sores and he was laid in bed for that amount of time and we were like well it's because of our impeccable care that's very good just we just wanted to ensure that he didn't lose obviously he lost dignity in the sense that he was in an adult nappy but cleanliness was obviously really important to him as well. And, you know, health was really important to him as well. And seeing him eat that amount of sugar and cake, it was really bizarre because I've never seen him crave that so much. And in fact, he used to shout at me for eating so many sweets, <laughs> saying all oh, my teeth are going to fall out. And then he's on his third ice cream. <laughs> How has this changed you? Because it's an experience that most young people would never go through. I feel like I've got a greater perspective on life and and what what it really means to me. I don't care for materialistic things as much as I used to because I found that my dad and my family are actually such a main source of joy in my life. And when dad passed away, I really you know, massive part of that joy faded away within me as well. So I feel like I've come to appreciate the sort of like non-tangible things in life a lot more. I've become a lot more selfless and aware. And, you know, if someone's going through a bit more of a trickier time, I'm a lot more, I'm, I'm, I'm able to kind of relate to it a little bit more because I hadn't, it sounds so silly, but I feel like I hadn't fully suffered up until that point, up until that point of losing dad, I just didn't know have have a greater realization of what life is all about, and, it, and it's all about just like love and being around people and being loved in return. So you have greater compassion than than cash. That's you know, and, and compassion means to suffer with, and we yes. certainly do that when we've got somebody we love immensely going through that. So you've got greater compassion. Yeah. For those around you, you have a better understanding of life now you've been through what you've been through. Yeah, it's really sad because there's not actually many positives that come out of a situation like this. And a lot of people always say to me, like, you're so strong. 
but it's like I have no choice mm. I can't just crumble and, and stop my life and lay in bed as much as I wanted to you've just got to keep moving and and kind of have that dad voice in your head of just keep going like keep going and I guess one of the bless one of the blessings of having someone that's terminally ill too is that no words are kind of left unspoken you say what you want to say within that moment because you know that they, they might not be there um, the next day. So we were all very vocal about the fact that, you know, we wanted to make dad proud, you know, whilst he could still register things, we told him we're going to make proud dad. You're still going to be with us and, and, and just kind of comforted him in that sense. Whereas if it's quite a fast and tragic death, you know, you hold on to all of that. Yeah. Um, so we were really lucky to, to be able to speak to him but then it's sort of like we said it and then it was like all that waiting for him to die. And he, and he had all of that. He held on to all of that in his heart, which which I think is like really lovely, but sad at the same time, too. Yeah. I could say that's courageous. I think when anybody listening to this, it's very difficult. You know, even I'm going to be honest with you, my, my dad, you know, he, he didn't say the words I love you. you no, know, men in mm. general, they're not very open. And a lot of us aren't to say to even our nearest and dearest in families, you know, to speak from the heart to to our loved ones is it does take courage and and it can feel very awkward but it's it, to do that is profound and it's liberating I would have thought for you to to have said what you really felt to your dad yeah yeah I think it's really important to say things to people whilst you're still alive and well because I didn't want and it's the same with dad it was important for him to get whatever he had on his chest out whilst he was still able to speak as well and I think all of us kind of felt a load lighter after doing that too because you know even though he's he's now passed away he's he's kind of registered that and he's understood that it's okay to let go and if he wants to kind of like pass on and you could tell he was fighting so hard towards the last few days of his life and I do remember I remember saying to him it's it's all right dad you know just relax like it's it's okay we're all here with you nothing to be you know frightened about and I, and I think we knew it was coming with dad we did sort of like night shifts so we'd move him into the living room and one of us would sleep on the sofa and just watch him that person would do the shift from sort of like 8 p.m when dad slept 7 p.m or 8 p.m when dad slept and then stay up till 6 a.m the next day Wow. And then another person would come downstairs and take over dad and then give him his breakfast and his morning wash and brush his teeth for him. And then that person would go to bed and wake up a little bit earlier. But we'd have a sort of like regime and, and routine. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I've not heard that before, actually. And how yeah. long did that continue, this kind of routine of taking over each of you, like a relay race almost of, you know, yeah. Oh, it was months, months, like months of it. And I just remember like staying awake and I'd I'd watch like a film on my phone or something to try and stay awake, but out of the corner of my eye watching dad too. (laughs) If his breathing stopped for like even a second, I used to jump up and like shine the torch in his face. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't allowed to go, was he? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and and also with dad, like when you're sleeping, 
at night you kind of like turn to the side and then you turn to the other side you know because you you need to sort of like wear your back out dad couldn't turn on his own so every few hours we'd turn him on his side he'd sleep we'd give his back a little rub just so it wasn't sore and then we'd turn on the other side give him water if he needed to there was just so much to think about just just to sort of like make sure he got like the highest quality of care we knew that we basically did have a night nurse come as well and we, we tried that out for a little while but my dad was really uncomfortable with the prospect of someone he didn't know in his house looking at him yeah. sleep so we were like we'll do it it's fine yeah. he had such peaceful night sleep with us around um understandably but yeah it was it was so draining because it the care doesn't end from when they sleep you have yeah. to keep your eye on them obviously you're a young person got lots of friends and stuff how did you explain to them what was going on and what would you say to people who have got friends that are going through this that they could do to help make it easier because you're going through this for 18 months it's a long time in a young person's life it's a long time in anyone's life but it's a long time your life's on hold how people respond now when you say oh you know my dad died that's a bit of a double question (laughs) Well, just to touch on your first point, I was really lucky to have such a great set of mates whilst this was happening and they checked in. But what I was with them was very honest and very plain about what was happening. And and if anyone else is going through this, my advice would be don't sugarcoat it to make other people feel comfortable about the situation. Because what you're going through is genuine trauma and you're watching someone in your family die, and the least that your mates could do, if they are mates, is just listen and acknowledge how hard that is for you. And and yeah, and I think me being really honest about my home situation helped them sort of care a little bit more for me, and and they wanted to do anything they could to, to kind of help, which was lovely. I think in terms of people being helpful in their words. I find it really frustrating when people have a positive outlook on a really negative situation. I am all for positivity, but not in a terminal illness situation. I think when people honestly acknowledge how hard things are, it made it easier for me because I felt like I could open up to them a lot more. And I think if people even said things like, how can I help rather than do you want help? Like just phrasing your questions just that little bit differently so you don't feel like you're being a burden to others. you got to just sort of like be a bit careful about how you speak to someone going through something like this because if you want to be there, then you've got to be there in, in its entirety and you've got to know that the person is going to be going through such a long haul, you know, trauma and it's not going to end when that person dies. It's going to continue that that person's going to hold on to that for a really long time. So, yeah, I guess just be upfront, be consistent and keep asking what you can do to help rather than asking if they need help because I can guarantee that they'll just say no. like we did because it's so much easier to do things yourself rather than accept it from other people but it's a sad reality but you've got to learn how to how to accept help I think that's something that we as a family 
really, really sort of like struggled with, not only because of coronavirus, but because we felt so protective over dad as well. There will be young people that are caring for a parent. What advice would you give somebody who who is in that moment now and, and trying to figure out their way through it? I'm not going to give you the conventional advice of be strong and power through because the situation is rubbish and it's okay to acknowledge that it's rubbish. Just make sure you're not going through it alone. Turn to sort of allies, friends, make sure you're speaking about how you're feeling because you're not caring for that person. You are offering up a piece of yourself too. And it's really important that you don't lose too much of yourself whilst caring for your parent as well. Just just keep talking, be honest. You will start to rebuild your life slowly but surely. Just know that in this particular moment, it's not going to be the reality forever. It's just a small fragment of, of your life currently, but it will become a memory that you will eventually be a lot stronger from. That's a really good point as well about being careful not to give up too much of yourself and that this is a fragment of your life because I think when you're in it, it might seem like this is never going to end and I'm never going to pick up my career again. My life is never going to get back to anything like it should be or what a normal 20 something life should look like yeah massively and there's just no rush with it I know when I was going through it I had major I, I got really sort of jealous of people going out and being able to sort of flaunt about wherever they wanted and, and go shopping or go out for a drink it was such a simple thing that they were doing, but I just, it's all I craved. I craved so much normalcy. If that person is within that moment and that, you know, they're caring for, for their parent, just know that you, you want to kind of tell yourself you did everything you could within that, that moment and not have any regrets and, and just be there. Like I can turn around and say to myself that, I have absolutely no regrets. I've been with dad every step of the way from his diagnosis to his death. I was there. I've watched him take his final breath. Just make sure you have a whole future ahead of you. Just make sure you're there and you're immersed in their final couple of days or months. Were you scared being there, you know, as your dad took his last breath? Because for a young person, I'm imagining that you haven't seen much serious illness or death. And to suddenly be holding someone's hand as they're taking their last breath. So the day dad died, a nurse came to do the check and she said, I think today's the day. So we had sort of amped ourselves up all day preparing for his death. And his breathing was so ragged, so slow that it could have happened at any point. So we brought him in his bed into the living room and we all sat around it hit midnight he was still breathing slow but still breathing and I remember mum turned to me and she was like just shut your eyes for a little while if he really slows I'll call you I promise and then it got to around like half one and she called me and she was like Kaj it's time you know he's, he's passing away when he passed away he looked so relieved his face looked so relaxed and that made me feel not relaxed, but it made me feel like 
okay, he's let go now. Finally, the suffering is over. It was such a strange mix of feelings because obviously I was horrified because that was a corpse now. You know, dad had left his body at that point. In the same vein, he passed away. My mum told me this, but before he passed away, he opened his eyes for the last time and then he gently shut them. And then he exhaled for the last time. And he hadn't opened his eyes in the in the final few days of his life. But that was the last time he opened his eyes just before he took his final exhale. So I think he knew that he was ready to let go. Yeah. To be honest, it would be selfish for me to want him here in that state as well. Because it's purely like, it's not like he could do anything with his life. I just want to cuddle him. <laughs> and I can't have him here just to cuddle his quality of life too. But yeah, I, I was horrified as well in that same sense, Sarah, too. I think as, as lifeless as he was, there was still life within his body. And then for him to just be still and then eventually cold. And then it all happened so fast when we called like the coroner and they came and when they when he when they took his body, that was the most heartbreaking thing because we'd kept him in this house for like over seven months. It's just like that was the first time he'd left the house and it was because he'd passed away. And then yeah, things just sort of like snowballed from there. And I think that none of us at that point after he passed away really had a chance to think about it because it was like funeral arrangements and who's coming to the house and these condolence messages flooding in flowers at the door. And, you know, I think when the ceremony was over and we returned to an empty house, it was like, right, this is really, really like heartbreaking because this, it feels like the end, a funeral feels so final. Like it it feels more official. You're left with your thoughts at the end of the day too. And it's really bizarre. And still to this day, going home to a house without dad. That's wonderful. I think you were all you were all together, and that was one thing that I wanted because you just never know. You know, you you can all turn your back. Somebody's gone to the loo for five minutes, and things have suddenly changed. And I always said to the powers that be, as it were, I'm not particularly religious, but I just went, please, just make sure that I'm there. You know, at the end, I just want to be there right at the end when you have that kind of love and you, you've been with them all that time and you put in so much love and effort you want to be there for the whole story is the way I would describe uh, it yeah. yeah I think when it when he passed away I don't know what it was but his body just looked like different like before he used to look quite big but in a he got a little bit like thinner because I think a lot of air had left his body at the time as well so we were able to squeeze him into one of his old jumpers it was the first time he wore it and it's like, oh my God, like it's actually dad's, like his glasses were on his face and it just looked so bizarre. Just, we gave him just such a nice, peaceful send off and it just happened in like the nicest way. And I'm so glad that we were able to fulfill everything that he wanted. It's, it's a small bit of peace that we can carry that okay, at least nothing's amiss. Yeah. Um, because I know that we we never get the chance to fulfill any of his dreams now, but doing it in that moment probably meant so much to him, even though Absolutely. he couldn't convey how he was feeling. It, it's a complete testament to him. He's the one that, you know, raised us alongside mum and 
really taught us what what family means, our family values. We look out for each other. We have each other's backs. And, you know, God forbid any one of us gets sick again, but I'll, I'll do it all over again, you know, if, if any of my family got sick. That is a real testament, like you said, what your dad installed in you, that even now, knowing what you know, you would do it all over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just such a an affirming and grounding experience. And it's made me just grow up. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, it really has. And, you know, and explaining what I've been through to other people. I feel like until you're immersed in that situation, talking about it just doesn't scratch the surface of how it felt. Like it's really hard to convey my words into into my thoughts and and emotions, but it was really, really difficult. But I know now living here and I know that my dad's blessings are are with me all the time and and I try and think, think about him all the time. And, and try and live in a way that he would want me to. Um, so that's like a small bit of solace I can carry with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, and knowing that in everything you do, like you said, in everything you do, there's a part of him that lives on because all that he installed in you is how you go on and live your life. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, dad was such a, a loving person. He was a bit like, bit like Neil Sarah where it's just it's hard for him to convey emotion but he still you could tell from his actions and he'd never say no to a cuddle you could tell (laughs) he just loved affection like he liked it but he wouldn't like go up to you and say can I have a cuddle (laughs) it's just not the way dad was that's um, so lovely that's great that you had you had such a beautiful relationship yeah. with him and the same with me with Neil actually but that you know a big heart a lot of love and and giving care because not everybody I I've kind of done an interview before one woman I called it um caring for an angry man and you can only imagine <laughs> oh it's going to be a slightly different scenario there but you know, for me, it was very blessed in the fact that Neil was love and, and it, then you, you you want to and you want to care for them and, and they appreciate. Not always. I mean, there were a few things, of course, because you're a human being. But I think, give you know, they're a heart of gold and they, they are so much love. And it's, it's easier to do, to be honest with you, it must be, you know, caring for somebody who's... You know, Absolutely. Who's and I heard this really nice quote the other day. It's actually, um, they said, grief is just love with no place to go. And it's yeah. like you want to give your love to that particular person. It's like I have bounds of it and I just want to give it all to my dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great but, phrase. I've never yeah. heard that one, Cash. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. It's, it's a, really, a really touching experience that I've been through and I feel like sharing it and, and talking about it. It's, it's very relieving, therapeutic for me. And knowing that someone could be listening to this and kind of think, oh, hang on a second, I relate to that. Yeah. That makes my experience just that a little bit more worth it because it shows others that actually, in fact, I'm not alone in this. It's very easy to feel alone in, in the moment because you're looking at everyone else getting on with their busy lives and you're at home caring for, for a parent. But it does eventually get better. 
That's a really important point. I think that's a good place for us to end, really, because I think that really sums it up. You're right. You know, it, it doesn't last forever. You can rebuild your life, but rebuild it as a better version of yourself as a result of your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and like we touched on, so easy to kind of go down dark avenues when things like this happen. So many negative things you can turn to. You can become hateful, bitter, and just not be yourself for a really, really long time. But then you've kind of got to ground yourself and think that can't live life with all these sort of negative feelings. You've got to live not just for that person that passed away, but for, for your own sake, just do, do it for you. Just be, be good and, and, try and try and come out of the situation with a better outlook than when you went into the situation. And, and kind of build on that brilliant have you got anything you wanted to ask Sarah I don't think so thank you Kaj thanks so much for sharing from the heart as well yeah. you can really feel it thank you for sharing for us and for for all those out there to this which would be gratefully helpful for anybody particularly young who's going you know going through caring for a parent at present oh thank you so much for having me it's genuinely been such a pleasure anyone out there is listening and and they feel like they're alone just know that you're not and that there's so many places you can turn to for support and you know you're never alone we hope you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode if you'd like more information you can visit our website at thebraintumorcharity.org or email our support team at support at thebraintumorcharity.org And finally, before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast, please can you leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so we can reach more people and raise more awareness. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today I've got with me 